Hello. You are listening to Program to Chill, a new show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode one, where I introduce myself and we get started talking about Sullivan and Cromwell. Part one, or as I call it, real life monopoly. Today I'm recording from 125 Broad Street in New York City, where I'm in town conducting some business for my boutique litigation law firm. All right, so let's get started here. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Jimmy Fallon Gong. My Twitter handle is at Jimmy Fallon Gong. I am unaffiliated with either Jimmy Fallon or the Fallon Gong for what it's worth. Just wanted to make that clear. I am an independent researcher. I recently got a grant from the Ford Foundation in partnership with the National Endowment for Democracy to start my podcast. If there's one thing I'm good at at life, it's reading books. I am also somewhat good at synthesizing those books. Some of you may know me from my Twitter account, uh, where I have done various threads that people seem to have enjoyed. Let's see here. So, I have been called by more than one person, uh, multiple upstanding citizens. I've been called the least paranoid and suicidal person that they know. And I take that as a compliment. Uh, let's see here. I generally won't talk about myself too much. I'm sure I will over time. Uh, generally a private person though. Uh, today's episode, I'm going to be going over new content. Over time, I will record episodes on some of the threads that I've done on Twitter. When I do that, I do commit to finding new information to add so that readers will find something new. Additionally, I believe in citing my sources, which I will always do at the end of the episode and frequently throughout the episode as well. I commit to clearly or trying to delineate between facts, opinions, and speculation and when I'm editorializing. That is the programmed to chill promise. So without further ado, let's get talking about Sullivan and Cromwell. Now, Today, Sullivan and Cromwell is an international law firm headquartered in New York City. The firm has attractive qualities that make it not attractive, excuse me, unique qualities that make it deserving of attention, as you will see. In this episode, we'll be looking at the connective tissue between the profits made by slavery, that is, of course, mainly referring to the Uh, chattel slavery in the United States, although not exclusively, as well as the sweatshops uh, of the 19th century in the U.S. here. And basically how those were, those profits from slavery and sweatshops were invested in big business monopolies during the Gilded Age. We'll be looking at events as early as the 1850s through roughly 1911. In future episodes, we'll see how these interests seized control of unelected positions of state. And by, you know, by no means is this an anomaly. You could argue that they always have and always will probably have uh, these positions. 
Uh, we'll see how these interests export their interests overseas for profit and how it all ties into statecraft and espionage. So, without further ado, let's get into talking about Sullivan and Cromwell. All right, so Sullivan and Cromwell focused uh, on handling business for cartels, syndicates, trusts, mergers, and acquisitions. Of course, by cartel, I'm referring to it in the uh, non-Mexican cartel sense, although there's some overlap there. So, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, so, essentially, Sullivan and Cromwell worked for companies that were seeking or already had obtained a monopoly. Uh, this is the biggest of big business uh, that it gets. So, people have described the Council on Foreign Relations as the nerve center for America's hidden permanent government. If that's true, then Sullivan and Cromwell could be seen as at least one of the nerve centers for Wall Street and transnational industry. To read a quote here from Stephen Kinzer's The Brothers, quote, Sullivan and Cromwell played an important role in the development of modern capitalism by helping to organize what its official history calls, quote, some of America's greatest industrial, commercial, and financial enterprises, unquote. In 1882, it created Edison's General Electric Company. Seven years later, with the financier J.P. Morgan as its client, it wove 21 steelmakers into the National Tube Company, and then in 1891, merged with National Tube uh, with seven other companies to create U.S. Steel, capitalized at more than $1 billion, an astounding sum at that time, unquote. Also, just to editorialize for a minute, we're talking about Sullivan and Cromwell because it's a vector for something I want to be an ongoing theme of the show, which is the intersection of legitimate business, politics, and criminality. And over the next few episodes, I'd like to make that more clear. All right, let's get into some of the actors here. Uh, unsurprisingly, Sullivan and Cromwell was founded in 1879 by, as you might guess, Sullivan and Cromwell, which is to say Algernon Sidney Sullivan and William Nelson Cromwell. Sullivan was the older lawyer. Uh, he was born in 1826, uh, dying in 1887. Uh, Sullivan's father was Jeremiah Sullivan, who was an Irish Protestant barrister who came to the United States and settled in Indiana. In fact, Jeremiah Sullivan named the city he settled in, Indianapolis. That's right, Sus Indiana is a topic we are going to revisit many, many times. So, Jeremiah Sullivan was an Indiana... He was Indiana prominent, but not New York City prominent. Uh, that would come with his son, Algernon Sidney Sullivan, who first practiced law in Ohio before going bankrupt in the Great Panic of 1857. Sullivan was a Protestant, uh... Around the same time that he went broke uh, in 1857, he married a descendant of George Washington and moved to New York City to start over again. 
Sullivan represented Southern business interests in New York City, uh, and he built his practice on his wife's connections, uh, which included managing investments uh, based on profits from slave plantations. Quote, His wife was a Virginia woman who influenced him. She was a genuine confederate, very pretty and smart, and when we talked together about the South and the Yankees, her eyes just blazed and neither of us could stop talking, unquote. Through his wife, the couple entered something called the 400, the list of the 400 most fashionable members of New York high society. The point of the list was to exclude the Arivists and the new money of the, mid, of the Midwest. The list was kept up by Caroline Shemmerhorn Astor. That's right, one of the Astors. It didn't matter that, uh, you know, he was new money from the Midwest because uh, of his wife, uh, who is a descendant of George Washington. So in his time in New York City, Sullivan met P.T. Barnum, Cyrus Westfield, and Grand Duke Alexei Androvovich of Russia and knew most of the prominent high society of New York City at the time. Let's talk about his career for a moment. In 1861, at the start of the Civil War, the USS Savannah was, uh, was one of the first Confederate warships. Uh, it went and disguised itself as a northern vessel to try to capture the warship USS Perry. The crew of the USS Perry overwhelmed the attack and captured the crew of the USS Savannah, which was... Uh, at that point, a Confederate ship. They uh, delivered the crew of the USS Savannah to New York City in chains. And this was an interesting case because it was technically piracy uh, at the time because the U.S. did not recognize that the Confederacy existed. Uh, piracy was an automatic hanging death sentence. And no one wanted to take the case in New York City except Sullivan. In fact, he was even briefly imprisoned for taking on the case. I believe the way it shook out was that they initially lost, but appealed the decision. And Sullivan was able to keep them off the gallows long enough for their lives to be spared via a prisoner exchange. Uh, that was one of his most notable cases. So a contemporary admirer uh, said that as a lawyer, Sullivan was not given to profound study of any particular case and was not by temperament or experience a lawyer of details. Like, hey, bro, check out my inattentive lawyer not given to <laughs> a profound study of any case. I'm totally going to jail. Okay, so from 1870 to 1873, Sullivan was assistant district attorney for New York City, and he later formed a firm with other lawyers before forming Sullivan and Cromwell. He was remembered uh, as a Southern sympathizing copperhead, and he though he did sponsor the first black man to be admitted to the New York City bar. Sullivan dedicated an Egyptian obelisk that still stands today at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Now, 
this is me editorializing here for a moment, uh, because I will say this. The 19th century was Egypt crazy, but I would suggest that this could also indicate perhaps uh, an enthusiasm for some more esoteric spiritual notions. So when uh, Sullivan died in 1887, all flags in New York City were put at half-mast, which was supposedly the last time a lawyer had ever been honored in that way in the city. And a final quote from Algernon Sidney Sullivan. Quote, The corporation is the cuckoo egg in the commercial nest and must be cracked. Unquote. Now let's talk about William Nelson Cromwell. He was born in 1854 and died in 1948. He was born in Brooklyn, and he was an Episcopalian. He got his start as an accountant at uh, Sullivan's law firm, uh, but Sullivan put him through law school at Columbia Law and then hired him as a lawyer. Eventually, they formed the firm Sullivan and Cromwell. It's after Sullivan's death, however, that things really start to take off. For one thing, we see the development of tax shelters, uh, starting with places like New Jersey. Cromwell and others got the New Jersey legislature to change their laws to attract corporations. Cromwell's package, which became law, had measures like setting the incorporation fees six times lower than they were in New York City, and it had things like a tax rate that was 10 times lower than New York City's. It also had rules preventing shareholders from inspecting company books or interfering with management. Now, if you know anything about business or accounting, uh, shareholders want to and need to see the company books. Uh, it also, very crucially, allowed corporations to own shares in other companies. So New Jersey passed this law in 1889 and then passed other laws that would add to that and make New Jersey a very attractive tax shelter. Now to quote Nicholas Shackson's book, Treasure Islands, which is a book about tax shelters, quote, for instance, in 1889, the state allowed corporations to own equity in other corporations, setting the scene for the emergence of large interlinked networks of companies, the multinational corporation, and transfer pricing activities, unquote. This led Standard Oil to relocate to New Jersey in order to take advantage of these laws. Other companies followed, and eventually New Jersey was the home for more than 700 corporations, which were worth, at the time, $1 billion, making New Jersey one of the first and most crucial uh, tax havens of the time. This is essentially a large, or this would become a race to the bottom with tax shelters becoming eventually what they are now, which is essentially uh, 0% taxes. So, eventually regulations and rulings caught up to Cromwell's New Jersey laws, but it bought companies a good 10 years of freedom in that state. Interestingly enough, it was New Jersey's progressive, and I do use that term lightly and ironically in its previous not-current sense, 
New Jersey's progressive governor, Woodrow Wilson, who enacted antitrust laws and led most of those same corporations to flee to Delaware. Now, Delaware is currently the tax haven state, uh, which is very interesting. An article in the American Law Review in 1899 noted Delaware's efforts to win the race to relax corporate standards uh, called Delaware, quote, a little community of truck farmers and clam diggers determined to get her tiny little sweet round baby hands into the grab bag of sweet things before it is too late, unquote. And as many of you probably know, Delaware remains one of the biggest tax shelters in the United States today. So Cromwell defended the American Cotton Oil Trust, which was in the process of getting trust busted at the time. He organized the appeal of the bust, and he. but one of the tactics that he used to defend the company was to register a new company in Rhode Island, which did allow trusts. And that essentially saved American Cotton Oil Trust from being broken up. And that company, the American Cotton Oil Trust, eventually split into Ingredion, which today is one of the largest multinationals in the world, specializing in high fructose corn syrup. And other elements of it broke off into Unilever, which basically has its hands in everything. Which is, So... You know, Cromwell was really doing the Lord's work there. But what was Cromwell like as a man? Well, there's a quote here from one of his employees. Quote, He ran the office like a skin flint. He expected the staff to reuse rubber bands and paper clips. Unquote. And a different person said, quote, Cromwell developed the reputation of a clever lawyer who taught the robber barons how to rob. Now, this was not an exaggeration. By all accounts, he actually did teach the robber barons how to rob. So he had all kinds of tricks in his book. One of his main tricks was known as the Cromwell Plan, a specialized plan for bankruptcy procedures. The premise uh, was to uh, basically hold off creditors as long as possible while awaiting an economic upturn in the chances that you don't, in fact, go out of business. And a key part of the plan would be to hand out promises to pay creditors more than they'd get in immediate drastic liquidations. Because, of course, the immediate drastic liquidation closes the door on any chance that there could be a turnaround. And he did, in fact, save a number of companies by doing this. This is now uh, arguably standard practice today. Cromwell also would, at uh, the office of his law firm, he would prowl the halls of the firm day and night and look for lawyers uh, making sure they were at their desks. Uh, he would make sure they were at their office uh, by checking the hat rack uh, to see if they were, you know, using the facilities or anything. And he considered... Anyone who fooled him in any sense, he would call that person a two-hat man or the lowest form of life. I guess the theory being that you could trick him by putting a second hat on the hat rack and then leaving with the hat on your head. <clears throat> so, J.P. Morgan called on Cromwell and his business acumen to organize 
the U.S. Steel Company, which was, like uh, we said earlier, the first corporation capitalized at more than $1 billion uh, valued at $1 billion back in the day. Uh, He did. He helped U.S. Steel uh, become the trust that it was. And that was, you know, a number of deals over several years. And in exchange, he got $2 million in shares, which he paid $250,000 for. Now, mind you, that is in 1900s money. Uh, One of his other key relationships was with a railroad baron named E.H. Harriman. Now, he had a long relationship with him. I won't go into some of the complicated details and the backstory, but basically, E.H. Harriman owned several railroads, and he wanted to gain control of the Illinois Central Railroad. Separately, he also wanted to retain control of the Wells Fargo Company against dissident shareholders. So there's a quote here, quote, Cromwell stopped the dissidents with deceit, bribery, and trickery. It was all legal insofar as the deceit was perpetuated through the accountants. Cromwell sent Sullivan and Cromwell associate, a tall Norwegian athlete, house to house, door to door, to talk, to sweet talk, and hand out $90 a share premiums to the dissident shareholders, not them not realizing the stock would be worth much more. Later, Cromwell called the Wells Fargo annual meeting in a claustrophobic office above a trolley horse station on a very hot day in August. So we're talking, it was hot, claustrophobic, it was stinky, and he was basically sweating out these shareholders to get them to go the way they wanted. Cromwell insisted that every vote that was cast go through an elaborate and lengthy counting procedure, which dragged the meeting through the entire day. (laughs) A meeting that would normally have gone, you know, maybe an hour, a couple hours, he dragged into an entire day's affair. He eventually wore down the opposition, ensuring E.H. Harriman would stay in control of the Wells Fargo Company. This was some real Slip and Jimmy Saul Goodman tactics, and the book that I am reading refers to it as the real-life version and inspiration for the game Monopoly. Harriman's takeover, using Cromwell's assistance, Harriman's takeover of a railroad company was universally condemned as a ruthless abuse of proxies to take control without a majority of the company. Uh, One journalist at the time at the Richmond Times-Dispatch called it, quote, piratical high finance, unquote, and the Philadelphia Press called it, quote, one of those ruthless exercises of power, one of those ruthless exercises of the power of sheer millions which diminish public confidence in railroad investments and make the small investor feel that he has no security, no adequate defense for his rights, and no efficient way to exercise power, unquote. Making them feel that way because that was in fact the case. Now, the probably the greatest feather in Cromwell's cap was the Panama Canal. 
Now, by no means was that solely his achievement, of course, but let's back up a minute. So, to switch gears, the completion of the Suez Canal in 1869 was a massive engineering achievement done by the French Canal Company, and of course, thousands and thousands of workers, many of whom gave their lives for constructing the canal. Uh, but on a engineering level, and I guess you could say on a financial level too, it was a massive achievement. I mean, really, it's hard to overstate how important the Suez Canal was for world trade. And the Panama Canal was also going to be one of those absolutely mind-blowing things that would just revolutionize shipping, make many products more feasible. You know, it's almost incalculable to uh, underscore how important the Panama Canal uh, would be. And of course, there was a time that it didn't exist. And the same company that built, that did successfully build the Suez Canal was dedicated to making the Panama Canal. Unfortunately, they bankrupted themselves uh, trying to make it. Uh, but some financial interests in the southern United States were deeply, deeply invested in making the Panama Canal uh, a reality. So they sent Cromwell uh, over to assist in the project and to ensure that it uh, succeeded. So in 1898, the chief of the French Canal Syndicate which was a group that owned large swaths of land across Panama. They basically, um, the French Canal Syndicate hired Cromwell to lobby the United, uh, United States Congress to build a canal across Panama and not Nicaragua. Now, at different points, there were two competing factions, uh, one of which wanted to build the canal across Nicaragua, the other across Panama. So the financial interests that Cromwell represented, which were by and large uh, southern states, uh, they were actually among them and the French uh, were among the forces that uh, inspired the Panamanians to break away from Colombia in 1903. You could argue that they engineered that to ha happen. So a month after the Panama Canal Treaty was ratified, Panama hosted a celebration at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. They gave the first Panamanian flag to ever be flown in the entire country. They gave it to Cromwell uh, as a token of their appreciation. Uh, for Cromwell's lobbying efforts, he received the sum of $800,000 back then, which would be over $20 million today. So after the treaty was ratified, uh, Cromwell was eventually paid another $2 million, which would be roughly somewhat more than $60 million today. Uh, and at the time, it was the largest amount ever paid to a lawyer, um, ever. And Cromwell basically was <laughs> the top lawyer in the world at that point, probably. Uh, he later leveraged his money and his uh, successes to become a member of the Stock Exchange of New York City. Uh, while he was 
at it, he also, Cromwell himself personally, snatched up 22% of the Panamanian Electric Company. Additionally, Cromwell helped utility companies avoid accountability by making holding companies that would allow them to consolidate. So one tactic, which is now common, involved creating holding companies that themselves did not issue common stock, but instead preferred shares without voting rights. They also pioneered open-ended mortgages, which allowed companies to borrow on corporate assets. So what we're talking about is basically the rise of a situation where companies can be owned by other companies, which can own a variety of shell companies. Essentially, uh, there's a quote here from uh, Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., the historian, quote, never had the architects of corporate finance built with such craft and mystification, unquote. We're basically getting to the point where, you know, one company can basically own as much as it wants. And that's, you know, one of the goals of trusts, monopolies, syndicates, things of this nature. So outside of his business dealings, uh, one of Cromwell's main pro bono activities was helping the blind, which is uh, indisputably just a nice thing to do. But another thing that he was very interested in was the founding of the, quote, Society of Friends of Romania, unquote, which he founded in 1920 under the patronage of Her Majesty Queen Marie of Romania. So the Society of Friends of Romania is a very interesting thing. I actually spent some time looking through the bulletin dedicated to Her Majesty Queen Maria of Romania put out by that Society of Friends of Romania. And would it surprise you to know that it's very concerned with the rise of communism and tied in with the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University? Now, if you've paid much attention to the Cold War or uh certain exile groups that the uh, State Department uh, funds, and especially the nat- through the National Endowment for Democracy, the, quote, friends of blank country, unquote, format uh, persists throughout the Cold War and today uh, as a format for basically <laughs> uh just it's a mechanism by which you can fund regimes friendly to the United States. There's really no two ways about it. Uh, as I was looking through this document from, I, I think the thing I was looking at was from 1926. It had great quotes, great articles, things like, quote, well, it's not an actual quote. Uh, basically saying Romania is in fact a democracy. Yes, it is a monarchical democracy. Yes, that's still a democracy. And basically a full essay describing how it can still be a democracy even when the monarch has broad legislative and executive powers. It's just phenomenal. Describing basically something closer to imperial Russia rather than, I don't know, maybe like the UK and just being like, no, it is in fact a democracy. It's just very cool stuff. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that Marie of Romania 
was born in Kent, England, and was herself from the House Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. Which I promise I will not abuse the Kill Bill Siren, but I will probably use it at least once an episode. That's the program to chill promise. But uh, who is the uh, House Sachs Coburg and Gotha? Why, it's only one of the several uh, royal families that uh, multiple nations draw their royal families from that house. Now, I promise you, we're not going full bloodlines on Program to Chill today, but it is worth mentioning. And I am certain that we will revisit the topic of House Coburg, uh, Sa- oh, excuse me, House Sachs Coburg and Gotha in future episodes. Definitely. And as a side note, uh, the official stance of Program to Chill is that the British monarchy are German pretenders to the throne, no doubt about it. So, let's start to wrap this up a little bit. What can we learn from the early history of Sullivan and Cromwell? For one thing, we can see, in fact, we can trace slave plantation money directly into the trusts and monopolies of the Gilded Age. Uh, Sullivan and Cromwell shows us a fairly straight line and a connective thread an interlock even, if you will, between the slave plantations to Wall Street to the monopolies and trusts. In future episodes, we will be able to link those same interests to U.S. imperialism and interventions in Latin America and to much of the crimes and blowback of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, One of the major uh, themes of the show, Program to Chill, will be to illustrate how the past isn't really past. Uh, It continues to influence us today. And no event, uh, no historical event, is a discrete thing unconnected from other events in history. Everything ties to everything else. Another thing, another lesson I'd like to not teach you all, like I'm not trying to be preachy here, but... I feel very strongly that the crimes of past ages reverberate throughout generations, uh, often not always in direct ways. In the novel Ulysses, the character Stephen Dedalus says, quote, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake, unquote. And I feel like our only hope for escaping the nightmare of history is to learn about these crimes, to inform ourselves And just maybe, if we know enough about what's happened in the past, we can avoid future tragedies and we can hopefully fight uh, for justice uh, in our lifetimes. That's one of the purposes I had in starting this show. And I would like to now mention uh, some of the sources that I used in making the episode. Most of the research that I used was in a book called, quote, A Law Unto Itself, The Untold Story of the Law Firm of Sullivan and Cromwell by Nancy Lixigore, 
I also drew slightly upon Treasure Islands by Nicholas Shackson, and to a lesser extent The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer, as well as that bulletin from the Society of Friends of Romania. <clears throat> so I will be posting a thread of images on the show's Twitter. Uh, check it out because there will be some cool pictures uh, of some of the people involved, and I feel like a lot of times with the visual element, uh, it can really help you uh, see some of these people and uh, put a name to a face, things of this nature. And I would encourage you, if you enjoyed the episode, if you liked the content today, to just show it or recommend it to a friend. And I promise there will be more interesting content coming up in the future. There are many, many things to talk about. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I... I used to read novels and watch a lot of television, and I found that basically reality is much stranger than I thought it was, and I'm never bored. I'm always looking at strange, interesting things from history, and I just welcome the chance to share some of it with you all. So just tell a friend, share it on social media, something like that, and hopefully uh, I can feel like I'm not speaking into the void, but... I've had a great response on Twitter, and hopefully this show can take off. I do have a bunch of episodes planned with some really cool stuff. So I need to head out. I am on my way to a cabin in Lake Ontario for the next week's episode. Uh, thank you for listening to Program to Chill, and God bless. God bless.